What an incredible God we serve. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to the little book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't have your Bible, that's why they get, God gave you a smartphone. Figure it out. Find an app. There's a place. You'll find it, I'm sure. Love for you to follow along as we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going through the little book of Nehemiah. It's a story in the Old Testament about a man who was in captivity and he went back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you say, oh boy, history, that's exactly what I wanted on a Sunday morning. But what we're finding out is that history teaches us a lot about life today. And today we're going to talk about following the directions, following directions. Guys, your wives want you to listen to this. Um, stereotypically, we say that men don't follow directions. I, I take great offense at that. Not that I follow directions, but I just take great offense at that. Um, I always say I, I have no sense of direction other than the wrong sense. If, I, if we come to a fork in the road and Kathy says, which way do you think it is? If I say left, she'll say, then turn right. And I always say I'm not lost, I'm just exploring. I uh, went to AAA. AAA says this, 34% of men will ask for directions. And the women are all saying, well, yeah, that means there's, you know, 66% of you do not. Well, AAA also says only 37% of women will ask for directions. The difference is men wait 20 minutes and women will do it within the first 10 minutes when they need to ask directions. The other difference is, according to AAA, 71% of men will not follow a GPS in a car. When asked why, they say they don't want another woman telling them which way to turn. That's, sorry, I, that was free. That was no extra. I, I actually ran across an article, true article uh, this week. Uh, it was in the New York Times, Why Don't Men Ask Directions? Uh, and uh, it says here, by running male and female college students through mazes, a respected psychologist believes he has shown that men and women like male and female rats, use fundamentally, fundamentally different strategies for navigating. I didn't like the fact that he compares us to rats, but that's... It says, both the human and animal experiments suggest that females tend to rely on specific landmarks for moving through space, the researcher said. In driving to grandma's house, for instance, a woman turns right at the deli, turns left at the library, right again at the big oak tree. Men tend to rely, and I like this, on a more primitive sense of motion. Yeah, yeah. Using remembered vectors, he said, in driving to grandma's house, a man cruises in one direction for five minutes, turns right, drives five or six blocks, and goes left, and then wins his way for about three minutes and turns right into the driveway. Neither style is, of navigation is superior, said the researcher, a man by the name of Dr. Thomas Beaver, a, psych a psychology and linguistics professor at the University of Rochester. Just to defend uh, this doctor, Dr. Beaver, I will just say that his associate who came up with this theory is Dr. Christina Williams, and she's the associate professor, and she's the first one to discover this. And she says, and, and I quote, that the male and female tend to one, favor one strategy and she trained the rats to run down the arms of a wagon wheel maze. And she said, if I move things around in the room, the things that the female rats normally were keying their directions off of, that they would get lost and couldn't find their food. However, the men never had a problem finding the food. So, 
research, what can you say? I don't know why men don't follow directions as well as women, but in a car that may not be crucial in eternity, it's absolutely crucial. What if we don't follow the directions that God gives us in how to live our life, how to know him, how to, to, to come into faith? And Paul was thrilled when there was a group of believers uh, that he was writing to uh, when they began to follow directions. Look at 1 Thessalonians. Look at what it says. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, God's directions, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, God's directions, which is at work in you who believe. And so... Paul is pointing out that there's a secret to maximizing our life here, to to maximizing the life we can have every day, especially in Jesus Christ. But that should literally bleed over into everything that we do. It should be a part of everything that we do. How can we be the best kingdom workers? How can we be those guys that God uses as a key person in the construction of what he's trying to do in this world? We do it by following directions. And I think it's interesting, if we go back to the New Testament and you see Jesus, when Jesus is calling Peter and Andrew and James and John and and he gets those 12 disciples and he brings them in, what does he say? Does he say, go to school? Does he say, um, you you need to believe? Does, Does he say, no, what does he say? Come, follow me. Follow me. And he gives us the directions. He he lives it out, is what Jesus does. And then he writes it down for us. Look at, at Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. How I follow reveals a couple of things. The first thing it reveals is my attitude. How is your attitude? Are, are you a good follower? Are you, a good, uh, are you one who follows God's directions? Well, it, it reveals an attitude that you have. Look at Nehemiah chapter 8. We're actually starting the, the one line before that because it was a very bad placement of, uh, of breaking this up as far as paragraphs. So the very end of chapter 7 says, When the seventh, seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. Have you ever heard Watergate before? I think there was something that went on in history that had to do with Watergate, but this is a different Watergate. It's literally a gate where they went in and out of Jerusalem. It was the closest to the springs, to the place where they could get water, and so they called it the Watergate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, and by the way, that was their new year. We, their year was different from ours. So this was the Jewish new year. On the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. In other words, all the children who were old enough to understand the reading of the word were there. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. When, did the, when does the sun come up normally? About 6 o'clock, give or take. You know, uh, daybreak at, at this time of the year would have been about 6 o'clock. So from 6 a.m. till noon, he read. I just want you to think about that. If we go over a few minutes today, I just want you to understand. They were there six hours. I'm just saying it's all. And all the people listened attentively to the book of, uh, the, book of the law. Uh, look at verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood, high, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. On his left were Padiah, Mishael, uh, Malkijah, 
Hashem, Hashbanadana, uh, Zechariah, and Meshulam. If you have a child coming, you might want to pick one of those names. Not probably Hashbanadana, but anyway. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And get this, as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, or may it ever be so, or may it be true in my life. May this come to pass in me, is what they're saying. Amen and amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We have this picture of a people who are passionate, who are excited, who are, who are all in in this thing. Um, we learned a couple of things, and, and I want to ask you two questions. Here's the first question. Am I teachable? How's your attitude? If God's doing an attitude check on you today, are you teachable? Is, is it something that you can do? We skipped over chapter 7. Last week we were in chapter 6. Chapter 7 is kind of the nuts and bolts. It's the mechanics of what was going on, and it lists all the people and what they were doing. They were a well-oiled machine. These people sing. These people serve. These people are, are doing the work around the temple grounds. These people are cleaning. These people are doing this other stuff. This is what all these people are doing. And so there's this well-oiled machine, and there's a spiritual vacuum. Because they get the wall built, they've got the, the gates in, and they think everything's done, but the whole point was not just to build the wall. And they missed that. And Nehemiah knew something was missing, and so the humble leader that he is, he knew he was not a prophet, he was not a priest, he was not a pastor, he was not a public speaker, he was the guy who motivated them to build the wall. So he gets Ezra, who is a prophet and a priest, he is the one that God is going to use to get the message out there, and he brings Ezra and his group in to teach them. And all these people stood here, pastor's dream congregation, they stand for six hours and listen to somebody preach and teach and tell them what God is saying. I mean, I can't even fathom that. I remember going on a mission trip over to, to Moscow, 1991. The USSR had not fallen at that time. We were there illegally. We were distributing 5,000 New Testaments, which was also illegal. We were a little nervous about it. And when we got to one of the churches, the, one of the, they kind of checked us out, and they decided they would let us come. And we met in this church after we'd been in Moscow and, and uh, Kiev. We went to St. Petersburg. And when we walked into the church, the pastor was saying this, this long announcement in Russian. And you could tell he was upset. He was kind of chastising the people. And I said to the, the man that was next to me, who was our interpreter, I said, what's he saying? And he says, he's, he's telling them that too many of them are coming to all of the services. They're having a Sunday morning service, and a Sunday afternoon service, and a Sunday evening service, and a midweek service, and they have to choose one of those four services because there's not room for everybody to be at all the services. And it just blew me away because the service went for three hours and nobody was ready to leave. What was also amazing to me is when I stood at one point and they were singing in Russian and I didn't know the language and I saw them open the windows and when I looked outside there were at least 150 or 200 people standing outside for three hours listening to the message. Those people were teachable. They were desperate because they did not have that access that we have. And so Ezra brings out the first five books of the Old Testament. He brings out the book of the law of Moses. Uh, Dr. Bruce Walkia, an Old Testament scholar, says that has to be the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. 
And so what he's, what he's reading is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's reading the story of Abraham. He's reading the story of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He's reading the story of Moses and the Exodus and what happened in Israel. And these people are listening to what God has done in their midst. And, and as Ezra is reading on and on for these hours, do you think maybe they begin to wonder why did it take God 10 plagues to get the people out of Israel? If you think about that, there were 10 plagues. If God knew that it was going to take that last plague where the, the eldest son in every family who didn't believe, who didn't, didn't put blood on the top of their bo- the, the door and on the side of the door, if they didn't sacrifice a lamb like God told Israel to do, as a picture of what would happen on Calvary when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, came and he died in our place That was a picture of what was going to happen. And if they did not do that, they lost their eldest son. If God knew that's what it was going to take, why didn't he start there? He starts with this this plague that literally demolishes and, and takes apart all of the Egyptian deities. He starts out with the Nile River because they worshiped the Nile River. And in Exodus chapter 7, it says that that Moses according to what God had told him to do, said, if you don't let my people go, this is what's going to happen. They didn't let the people go. And the Nile turned to blood, and it said it, it was smelled so bad, the people couldn't drink it. They were digging down in the sand next to the Nile trying to find water. The people worshipped the, the sun god in Egypt. And so in Exodus chapter 10, it says that, that Moses comes and says, listen, if you don't let my people go, God is going to literally blot out the sun only in this area. And for three days in Egypt, there was no sunshine just in that one area. How did God do that? I don't know. But he did it for three days until they finally came and said, we were wrong. And he takes 10, 10 plagues. I believe it's because there were 10 Egyptian deities that he was one at a time demolishing their worship of something other than God. And my question is, are we teachable? Are we worshiping anything other than Jesus Christ? Are we worshiping anything other than the God that is described in this Bible? Is there something that you worship? And you say, well, you know, I'm just not really that religious. What's in your wallet? What do you do with your money? What do you do with your time? You may not have this big idol in your house, but then again, you spend an awful lot of time in front of this one screen. What do we worship? Is there anything wrong with money? Is there anything wrong with TV? Is there anything wrong with these other things? No, but is that what you worship? Is God trying to to speak to us to expose that we're worshiping something that's worthless? Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 in the New Testament tells us the same thing. The writer of Hebrews writes and says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because You're slow to learn. If you went on to the next verse, it it says, In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. Are we slow learners? Are are we slow at learning? We're, We're at the beginning of football season. In fact, I'm sure there's somebody here that couldn't come because there's a game on. And, uh, you know, I follow the Chiefs, and so it's not a big priority for me. 
But, but you understand, and, and of course there's all, at the start of, every time we get to the start of the NFL season, there's all this thing about the Vince Lombardi Trophy. That's what everybody wants. You, know, you, you want to go to the Super Bowl. You want to win the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Vince Lombardi was the greatest NFL coach that ever lived, and, and they go on and on. They forget that Vince Lombardi, when he came into the Green Bay Packers, when he first came to that team, they were a bunch of losers. I could make that argument again today, but that's a whole different, a whole different deal. I'm just kidding. Both of you that are fans. Man, I got that. But for 10 years, they hadn't won games. And he had several practices with these guys, and, and he was frustrated out of his mind. He didn't know what to do with his team. And so finally, at third or fourth practice, halfway through the practice, he blows the whistle. He says, everybody take a knee. Vince Labardi. And he pulls, he says, throw me a football. And he hands this, they hand him a football, and he says, this, gentlemen, is a football. Those markers over there, those are the yard markers every five yards. And I am the coach, and you are supposed to be the players. Now, he's well known for this little speech, but the reason he did it, he was frustrated out of his mind, and somebody afterward who heard it, who wrote it down, said, why were you so tough on them? He said, because they're slow learners. Is the Lord holding up his word in front of us again and saying, this is are your directions. These are your directions. This is my word. This is who you should worship. Number two, am I excited? Not only am I teachable, but I'm, am I excited? It says all the people in verse one, it says everyone who could understand gathered, all the children gathered. They didn't have to say, oh, can the kids stay home today because this is going to be probably one of those boring services. They didn't say that. The kids gathered and all the people were there. It says when Ezra stood and, wor- and read the word, nobody said, hey, y'all stand while, we, while he does this. They just stood for six hours. And later on, when they began to understand what had happened, they were raising their hand in worship to the Lord. You know, even in New Testament, it says, I, want, I, I pray that men everywhere will lift holy hands in prayer. And they get excited about what was happening, and, and, and they got involved. They responded, amen. May this, may this be true in my life. They were engaged. There's a difference between watching a game. I, I've been to several games here. We went to the Upward uh, Sports Games uh, several times, the basketball league that we have, and it's coming up again after the first of the year, and, and we loved watching these kids play, kids who had never played basketball before. You know, and you say dribble, and you, were, you had to explain it for some of the littler ones, what that, what does that mean? And, and they had to learn to dribble the ball, and, they, and they, sometimes they would put the ball in the wrong basket, and I would watch. I was kind of amused, and I was kind of entertained but I watched parents watch. Okay, okay, pass the ball, pass the ball, get, get, in, get in position, come on, come on, come on. And they're coaching from the side. And I'm thinking, first of all, the kid can't hear you. And secondly, they don't know what in the world you're saying if they could hear you. But those, those parents were engaged. Many, many years ago, Handel wrote a beautiful oratorio called The Messiah. And when Handel's Messiah was first premiered in front of King George I, it's a three-hour-long classical oratorio. And it goes on and on. It's beautiful. It has gorgeous music. I love it, love it, love it. And you get to one portion. It's actually not the end. About two-thirds of the way through, there's a chorus called the Hallelujah Chorus. Hallelujah. You remember? You're with me? King George I 
they got about four measures into the hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And he stood up. The king of England stood and all the people saw it and they knew that in the presence of the king you were never to remain seated. And so they stood and they were trying to turn and focus on the king and he just pointed to the front. He didn't want them to look at him. And someone afterwards said, why did you do that? And he said, I stood in reverence and awe to the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you understand what it means to get excited in worship and, and, and to have something come over you? That's Nehemiah and the Israelites, they were respectful and they were involved and they were passionate. And you say, well, that's not my personality. Here's what I have found out. You may not be passionate about church, but you're passionate about something. Right? You're passionate. You may be passionate about a sport. You may be passionate about cooking. You may be passionate about decorating. You may be passionate about spending money. You're passionate about something. I was talking with Josh Wiley uh, the, the other day, a couple weeks ago, and he was encouraging me. He's going to a, a new program, a new workout program called HIT. H I I T. Has anybody here heard of HIT? It, it stands for High Intensity Interval Training. High-intensity interval training. When I heard about that, it, it, it kind of shook me a little bit, the high-intensity part. And he talked about, well, we do burpees where you do push-ups and then you jump up and do jumping jacks one after another. Push-up, jumping jack, push-up, jumping jack, and all of this other stuff. And he, and he said, it's really high, high level, and you get 15 seconds to rest in between. So I have come up with my own training program. The DVDs will be out. It's called Slack. S-L-A-C, sedentary, loafing, and consuming. That will be my workout program. I'm passionate about food. If you're not excited about God's word, why not ask him to build a fire in your heart? In Romans chapter 15, verse 13, look at what it says. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Paul is writing to, to Timothy, and, and as he's writing to Timothy, he says, I'm praying that God will, will stir up the embers and, and light this flame in your heart, that he will restore the passion. There are great treasures in God's Word. If, if you just ask him to reveal those treasures to you, to get excited about what he's doing, how I follow reveals my attitude. Am I trainable? Am I excited? And here's the second part of this. How I follow reflects my comprehension. How I follow reflects my comprehension. Go back to, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Look at verse 7. It talks about then the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, uh, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, uh, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law. There was this whole team teaching them instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. He repeats again that they stood this whole time. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear. Literally, I believe that says translating it from the Hebrew, I believe, to probably the languages that they were more familiar with, and giving the meaning so they were also explaining it so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. What? For all the people had been weeping 
as they listen to the words of the law. When's the last time that you read the Bible and it moved you so much that tears came to your eyes? When's the last time you heard something about God that, that just so overcame you that, that the emotions just welled up? Verse 10, Nehemiah said, and this is my life verse, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. That is my life verse. It's not really. Actually, the choice foods there means the good steak with fat on it. It's ribeyes, okay? That's literally what it means. Go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still. For this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Now look at verse 13. On the second day, this all happened on the first day. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families along with the priests and the Levites gathered around Ezra, the scribe, to give attention to the words of the law. They came to church on Monday. Not just Sunday, the second day they're back again. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, go into the hill hill country, and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees, and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, little shacks, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their, own, on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had, been, that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. Now they had perfectly good houses to live in, and they made little shacks out of branches. Look at what it says. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day... The Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. From the days of Joshua, it looks like that may have been 800, 900 years. Do you understand? All of a sudden, this little group of people in Jerusalem, this insignificant gathering, did something that was historically noteworthy. Look at verse 18. Day after day. From the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth, in accordance with regulation, there was an assembly. How I follow reflects my comprehension. How much do we comprehend? How much do we understand? How much do we get of what we read, of of what we are told, of what we're instructed to do? Two questions again, and we'll be done. Do I understand my situation? Do I understand my situation? The the people were there that day, and they began to read in Hebrew, and they began to realize that some of these people had had been exiled in in Babylon. They were Jews by birth, but they'd been out of the country for at least a whole generation, 70 years. Some of them had been there considerably longer than that, maybe a couple of generations. And if you are in another country that the, the other language is all that's ever spoken, then you will learn that other language. And Some of them had forgotten Hebrew. They had forgotten their native language. My dad was born in Germany. He came over with his mother, American father, German mother, came over when he was five years old. But his mother said to him, 
there will be a stigma against the Germans. I want you to never speak German in my presence. She wanted to learn English. And, and so my father, by the time that I was born, could not remember any of the German. And that's exactly what happened with them. And so not only did they have to read it, but they had to, they had to interpret it. They were Babylonian by mentality, by lifestyle, by communication. They'd lived so long in this other society that what God wanted them to be and do was lost to them. Do I understand my situation? They thought fixing the wall was the goal. Fixing the wall contained them. It protected them. It, it, it identified God's people. It allowed them the freedom to study His Word. It was the means to the end. It was not the end itself. It was a useful, helpful environment for them in which to direct people to the eternal truth. What's the eternal truth? That we're to know God. That He came down in the form of Jesus Christ to bring his message. Every religion on this earth is man's attempt to find God. Christianity is the only one that claims that it came down from God and that God sent his son to bring this message. It's the only one. That's what it's all about. So they made it clear. You see, we have translations. I'm reading out of the, the NIV, the New International Version. It's not that the Bible has changed, but language does. If you ask, I can prove it, ask any kid here today, 15 or younger, what a tablet is. What's a tablet? And they will tell you it's a computer that's halfway between the laptop and smartphone. It's halfway between that. Ask anyone here 60 or older, maybe 55 or older, what a tablet is, and they'll describe something that they took to elementary school that had a big red chief on the front of it, and you used it for spelling, and it had big lines, and later you could get ones with smaller lines. It was a, it was a bunch of paper stuck together. It's the same word, just the language changed. And, and we don't understand that. And when they understood that, they began to weep. When they understood what was being said in their situation, they began to weep. Folks, listen to this. God needs America to weep because we don't understand our situation. We don't understand what was given to us and what we've frittered away. We do not understand, and this is not about politics. This is about faith in Jesus Christ. We were founded on Judeo-Christian ethics. We were founded to have freedom to tell people about Jesus Christ, and we have given that away, and we don't understand our situation. And sometime, at some point, Christians need to get on their face and with tears in their eyes and ask God to give us back what we gave away. David does this. When he finally understands his sin, he sinned with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51.3, look at what it says. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. When we understand our situation, it, it, it's, it's shocking. And, and we don't even know what their sins were. When these people were wailing and crying and weeping that day, we don't know what sins. It doesn't matter because when you come into the presence of Almighty God, when, when you begin to know Him, you begin to see the things in your life that displease Him. Sometimes your situation seems hopeless and desperate. Sometimes God has bigger plans. I love the story in the Old Testament where Israel is surrounded by this vast army. They look out one day. And they're just surrounded. And Jehoshaphat is the, is the king at that point, And he looks out and he realizes they don't have any army that can even begin 
to counter this army. And he knows they're going to be defeated. He knows they're going to be overrun. And so he falls on his face before God and he says, God, what can we do? And what does God say to him? Look at what it says in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15. He said, that's the prophet that, that comes from, bring the message from God. Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. When you worry about what's happening in our politics, when you worry about what's happening in our country, when you worry about all this and you think, what can I do? You need to remember that God is the one who put us here, and God is the only one who can get us out of this. The battle is not ours, it's God's. And on that day, Jehoshaphat believed that so much. You know who went out in the battle the first? The choir, the praise team. They were sitting there clicking their fingers and walking along and singing and, and playing ram's horns and maybe a couple of guitars. And I'm sure Preston was there and he was beating on some shells or something. We had, they had all the rhythm section going. And the, the choir went out and by the time they got there, the army was decimated because God is the one who did it. Do I understand my situation? Number two, do I understand God's solution? His solution begins where we repent. His solution begins when we get to the point where we say we are in trouble. We're desperate. And as they wept, Nehemiah encouraged them to celebrate. And you say, well, that just doesn't make sense. If they were, if they were repenting, why should they celebrate? Because Nehemiah knew what we know now, that God will take away all of the wrong things that we've ever done. You can't, you can't earn your salvation. The Bible is very clear. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not something you can work for so that no one can boast. It's not something you can earn. It's something that God gives you freely because he already paid the price. He's already paid for it. And so he wanted them to celebrate God's grace. He wanted them to celebrate God's forgiveness. He wanted them to celebrate God's love. Look at Psalm 79, 9. It says, help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and forgive us our sins for your name's sake. In the Old Testament, people were saved just like in the New Testament, before and after. It's still the same, that God forgives sins. It's not something you do. It's not something you pay for. It's not something you earn. It's not joining a church. It's joining God's family. And that's what Nehemiah, that's what Ezra understood. There's a verse in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that's Jesus Christ, God the Son, God made him who knew no sin, which literally means he was perfect, he was pure, he never did anything wrong. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. He took our place on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We don't understand that. We don't understand God's solution. And then there's this, this weird story about the huts and the booths. And, and why, do, why are they supposed to build these little huts? Why are they going to put a you know, little shed over themselves when they have this room? Because it's so easy to forget what God has done. It's so easy to think it's all about us. It's so easy to think that we're somehow worthy or, or that God is blessing us because we were born in America or we, God is blessing us, but that it has nothing to do with us. 
And so every year he wanted them to go spend seven days away from all the luxury, away from running water, away from all that stuff, to understand how good he had been. Because they lived that way for 40 years living in huts. And God said, do you understand where you were and where I've brought you? Do we understand God's solution? No. Because we would never continue to live like we live if we understood what God offers us. Because we're living spiritually in huts. Oh, we, we have the, the latest car, the latest boat, we have the latest this, we have the latest that, and we think that we have it all figured out. And God says, don't you understand? You're still living in a hut. And in John 14, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me. And Jesus says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to prepare a mansion. I'm going to prepare this place for you so that if I go, I'm, I'm going to come back and, and you're going to find out what's going to happen. And it's awesome. What I love about this is there's no flashy miracle. There's no big deal. There's no big, huge, you know, David doesn't come out with a slingshot and take down a giant. They don't part the waters. But God does a miracle in their hearts that day. And actually... This story in the Old Testament is one of the greatest stories because it's the real first revival where people who claimed to know God got serious with God and got right with God. My parents always told me when I was going out, don't be a follower, be a leader. Did your parents ever tell you? Don't be a follower. My, my mother used to say this. I mean, she was from the South, and so she would say, if everyone jumped off a cliff, would you? And what I told her is, I don't know anybody jumping off cliffs, Mom. Smart little mouth on the young kid. If everybody jumped off a cliff, would you? The, the truth is, God wants us to show that independence from those who are leading us in the wrong direction, but he wants us to follow the one who's pure, who's perfect, who's never done any sin. He wants us to follow the one who has our best interest in mind. True story, and I'll close with this. Michael and Maria Durso were a couple in 1984 living in Manhattan. Michael Durso, his father had multiple restaurants. He was filthy rich. His father was. Uh, Michael grew up in a rich home. Uh, he had everything he ever wanted. He, he married the most beautiful girl he could find, Maria Durso. His wife uh, was gorgeous. And, and with all of the money, he decided that he was going to live life the way he wanted to. And he started having regular cocaine parties. He had a million-dollar apartment in, in Manhattan, and he would have people over, and they would, man, they'd do lines of cocaine. I mean, they would just get, they'd get high. They had so much fun. And, he, he, you know, his idea of a quick vacation was two weeks in the Bahamas. He had all the cars. He had everything you could imagine, the clothes, leather jackets and everything. And, and Michael just thought his, his life was perfect. And one day his wife, Maria, was there and he said, hey, let's go to a party. And she said, my life is empty. I, it, this seems like it's perfect, Michael, but there's something wrong because my life is empty. And I'm, I, I've got two girlfriends and they've been studying the Bible and reading the Bible and going to this church called Christ, uh, Christ Community, Christ um, Tabernacle in Queens. And I, and I think that we need to go to church tonight because they've got this evangelist from Texas. And so Michael went, he said, when I saw this guy, he looked like a hillbilly. He talked like a hillbilly. He had a buckle big as the state of Texas. And he said, I thought he was ignorant and stupid. And, and he said, I decided I'd go down to the front row. And he said, we, when my wife came in, she wanted to sit in the back. And I sat on the second row and I made fun of him the whole time. His gestures and his words and, and his drawl and his, you know, and, 
you know, God gave us southern people real language. The rest of you just have to catch up with this. But anyway, he was making fun of this Texan the whole time with his Bronx accent, you know, the New York accent. He said until the very end, the last five minutes, and all of a sudden, it was like God smacked him. He said, literally, it's like I could feel the fingerprints on the side of my face. And he said, I heard in my mind, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I heard in my mind, Michael, this message is for you. Listen. Michael Durso listened to the last five minutes and realized that if he died that night, he would go to hell because he had run away from God. And when they gave an invitation at the end, he came down and he prayed and accepted Christ. That night they went home and they threw away thousands of dollars of drugs. That night they went home and they began to get rid of movies and other things in their life that they knew did not honor the Lord. They began to go to this Christ community, the Christ Tabernacle Church. Eventually they ended up at Brooklyn Tabernacle and they were, they were mentored there and Michael gave his life over to the Lord. Today Michael Durso is the pastor of Christ Tabernacle Church. At the time that he went, they had 74 people attending. Today there are 1,500 people who worship at Christ Tabernacle because God got hold of Michael Durso. And my, my message is this. Do you understand your situation? Do you understand God's solution? If so, what are you going to do about it? Let's pray. We love you, Father. In just a moment, we're going to see a couple of ladies who have decided that they want to let everybody know where they stand with Jesus Christ. And we're excited about that. And we praise you for that. Father, we know that there are many others that may be here that they don't know where they are spiritually. And the truth is, if they were hit by a car on the way home, they don't know what would happen. And I think you brought them here for the same reason you brought Michael Durso on that night. I think you wanted them to hear the message. And Lord, you laid it on my heart this week, all week long, that that's why I was to preach this message. We are your people, Father. We don't have the answers but we will follow you. We'll follow your directions. We will listen to your voice. We'll be faithful to do those things that honor and praise you. Lord, if there's one person here tonight, uh, to this morning, that doesn't know you, may you impress on them the need for them to come and pray, to listen as someone just gives, takes a few minutes to tell them about what Jesus Christ has done in their life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a song. If you're, you're here to be baptized, you can leave if you've not already done that. As we sing the song, there's a couple rows right here in the front. You can sit down here on any of those chairs. We have deacons and their wives that will watch. We have Sunday school teachers uh, that will come and sit down with you. And they're not going to try to get you to join a church. They're just going to tell you about who Jesus Christ is. And they're going to pray with you. If you have a spiritual need while we sing, do that. It won't bother us. Let's stand together as we sing.